You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, and I like it. I'd like to start off by portion of the show by giving a taste of a little something we call Rock and Roll! 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 Still Rock and Roll to me. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I am show host, producer, and the world's foremost expert in bovine gynecology, Don DiMuccio. We've got another great one lined up today. But first, I want to remind everyone that if you've been enjoying what we do, be sure to subscribe to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast on iTunes, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever you download your favorite content. And if you want to write a few nice words about the show in the comments section, who the hell am I to stop you? For more information on the show, including our official merchandise store, visit www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. And remember, that's spelled out all as one word, no spaces or apostrophes or abbreviations, please. Now, with that ugliness aside, back in 1983-84, just about everybody I knew was a metalhead. The names Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, and Twisted Sister were emblazoned across t-shirts, buttons, and patches alike. But no band was bigger in my circle of friends than Quiet Riot. Now, full disclosure, I didn't appreciate the genre at the time, right? I was enamored with The Who and Led Zeppelin, and I saw the current metal scene at the time as kind of juvenile in comparison. Basically, I was a snob. But you fast forward now, what, 40 years later, and I'm amazed at the talent and dedication those metal musicians possessed. And nobody personifies that expertise and devotion to the music than our guest today. Basis for Quiet Riot, Rudy Sarzo.
Our guest today emerged from the early 80s heavy metal invasion as the genre's go-to bassist, best known as a member of Quiet Riot, and for his work with Ozzy Osbourne, White Snake, Dio, and most recently, The Guess Who. He's also an accomplished songwriter, broadcaster, and author, who in 2006 detailed his personal and professional relationship with the late guitar legend Randy Rhodes in his memoir, Off the Rails. He continues to be a ubiquitous presence in the heavy rock scene, with no signs of slowing down anytime soon. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, the great Rudy Sazo. Good morning, Rudy. Good morning, Don. How are you doing? Not bad. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> that was a beautiful introduction. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. It's all true, too. Where are you calling home these days? Are you still in L.A.? Or? Hey, it's the same place that I've been going home since 1970s wow. because I kept going in and out of yeah. L.A. You know, every time I ran out of money, I went back <laughs> on the road to, with some top 40 band and uh, came back and... Uh, I've been here since 78, 1978, and I consider myself reborn in Los Angeles because uh, it really molded me into who I am today as a musician and my consciousness and everything that came along with it. And we're going to get into all that, but first, hit me with the proper pronunciation of your full birth name. Oh, my birth name? <laughs> the one that is too long for an email address? But I've seen it in print. Uh, yeah, Rodolfo Maximiliano La Vieille Grande Ruiz Paires Chambon. As a matter of fact, you know, they asked me for security reason from like, let's say, you know, certain things. And every time they ask me, you know, my mother's maiden name is like, okay, here we go again. They're not going to get it. <laughs> it's nuts. When did you change it to just Rudy Sazo? Well, I did not change it. If it wasn't for my fifth grade school teacher in West New York, New Jersey, when my first day of school, when my family got relocated from Miami to West New York, New Jersey, which is right, right across the river from, you know, on the Hudson from sure. New York City in New Jersey. And I went to my class public school number five and I'm settling in my desk all the way in the back and, and I hear Rudy Rudy and I'm not paying attention I've never heard I don't even know what a Rudy is yeah right. was and I look up and the teacher points at me and says yes you Rudy and I go oh no uh Rudolph because <laughs> I went from Rudolfo and then I became Americanized to right. Rudolph right and he says no no Rudy you're Rudy from now on <laughs> You know, listen, it was my process of adaptation, which any immigrant, or in my case, a refugee, you know, when you're a child, you just adapt, try sure. to survive in, sure. you know, the new environment and the way things are. And I'm sure that if my family had decided to move to Japan, I would be Yuki. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like exactly. <laughs> yeah. You bring up the point because you were born in Cuba. Um, yes. Whenever I have a guest on, I always like to find out what their first earliest experience is hearing rock and roll. I mean, most of my guests are either from the U.S. or England or maybe Canada. But, you know, being born in Cuba, you're from a country where the government considered the Beatles and Dylan pro-capitalist propaganda. Do you remember any of that as a kid? Yeah, you probably your guests are younger than me because when I was born, rock and roll did not exist. I was born in 1950. Right. And, you know, historically, rock and roll is considered to be 55, 56. 
the birth of and coined the term rock and roll, which was uh, given to artists such as Chuck Berry, Elvis, and Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and, you know, and Buddy Holly, and so on. Fats Domino, you know. So, you know, in the pre-revolution, which started in 59, the Castro, you know, communist revolution, pre that, we did have rock and roll. As a matter of fact, we had rock and Espanol artists in Cuba, uh, artists that would take rock songs and sing them in Spanish. So we did have that. But of course, you know, rock and roll, even in the United States, was considered a passing phase for teens and was not taken very seriously by the economy or even, you know, the culture until it started making a lot of money (laughs) when the British invasion happened. You know, that's when it really exploded. What was the first thing that turned you on as a kid, rock and roll wise? Uh, in 1963, when we were living in New Jersey, my parents bought my brother and me one guitar. So we shared that. And of course, you know, I, I experienced this with parents that have children that want to go into music. And they asked me for advice. And I said, well, first of all, you know, make sure that you buy them an instrument that inspires them to play. Because I do these things called Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp whenever I'm not touring. Right. I've been doing them for like 14 years. And, and rarely do we get young people. It's usually for A-type personalities that are very successful and they rediscover that Stratocaster, whatever instrument that they happen to be have in the closet that's been there since they graduated from college and became doctors and lawyers and, you know, whatever. But when we do have young campers, we call them campers, and and we are the counselors, most of them show up with a very cheap instrument. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, you know, and I I speak to the parents about this, and they tell me it's because they're not sure if if they're going to commit to becoming a musician. Right. And I tell them, well, you know, you, you spend all this money to bring him here to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp because it's not cheap, you know. And I say, you know, and then you're going to give them this instrument that is going to fight their musical development because I tell them, look, I can't play this instrument that they're coming in with. So I cannot expect their young hands to actually be able to play these instruments, you know. So I always tell parents, you know, yes, you can you can get a beginner affordable instrument that it's not very expensive. It's not. Just make sure that you get, you know, brands such as, let's say, Fender. As a matter of fact, I work with a brand called Sawtooth that they make some great inexpensive uh, musical instruments, guitars and basses and, and even drums. You know, yeah. I really recommend anybody out there, any parent who wants to gift their children with a musical instrument to uh, either, you know, a Fender, a Gibson. Actually, the Fender will have the, the affordable line will be the Squire and the Gibson will be the Epiphone. But they're still, you know, great brands and also Sawtooth. Sure. And I hear you, what you're saying about that, that you want the kid to be inspired. But there is also something about that. Like, I'm a drummer. And when I was a little kid, I kind of cobbled together a kit out of what my older cousins were throwing out or something, you know. And there is something to, like, starting on that, work your way up. I can't stand when I see, like, an eight-year-old with a 1955, uh, you know, Gibson Les Paul. You know, and then they give it up the next week to go play baseball or something. It's a fine line. You want them to be inspired, but you also want them to work towards something. Yeah, yeah, and and the fine line is that affordable instrument that that I'm talking about that is really a good quality instrument. Sure. I had a series, I went through a series of instruments. Um, The first bass that I have, what's called Kingstone. 
you know, really cheap. I don't even know where it was built because back in the 60s, yeah, you know, we didn't have China building us a whole lot of stuff. Right. So it was either Japan or Korea, probably Japan. Okay, Kingston. Okay. And then the next one was a Gibson EB. Now, that's a quality instrument sure right is. there. Yeah. And, and I worked as a busboy in a restaurant and got my money together and bought that bass. I think it was $100 for an EB. Now, that bass will be worth oh like God. thousands right now. Yeah. This is, I'm talking about 65, 66. Yeah. Then I got more money together and then I bought my, in 1967, so I was still playing little, you know, high school parties and things like that, right? Yeah. I was still in, I was still in school. And I bought a 67 jazz bass that was about $350. Those are like, you know, 10 grand right now. Sure. So I was playing what is considered today a vintage $10,000 instrument when I was still in high school playing party bands. You know, that's what was available then. Today's vintage instruments were yesterday's stock that you pick up from a wall, you know, at a and music everybody store. loves those sounds from those old records because of those instruments, but that's what people had back then. Yeah, that's what you had. You had basically, you had um, a, a handful of brands. For bass, of course, you have Hofner, which is, you know, the Beatles, you know, Paul McCartney made that very popular. Yep. Um, but it has a specific tone. And, and you know, it's kind of like, I love my Hofner. I have a Hofner uh, vintage reissue. That and what's amazing about those bases, they're still made at the same factory that, let's say, Paul McCartney's bass was made. Really, right? By the same people <laughs> or oh, people that that you know, craftsmen that were that were handed down, mentored by the ones who built it originally. And there's a company nearby. It's called Pyramid Strings from the factory, Hofner factory, that supplies the Hofner bass strings. Those are like the accurate ones to get. You cannot, you know, if you really want that Beatle Hofner sound, you get these pyramid strings, you know. So these are, you know, there's certain brands that have really maintained the, the legacy by not changing anything, not even where the factory is. And when they build it, like mine comes with a certificate, Oh, and signed by everybody that worked on the bass, and they make it look exactly like Paul McCartney's bass sure. and all of that. And, and I love it, and it sounds, um, nothing sounds like that bass. You know, no, no other bass sounds like that Hofner bass. And then you have, you know, back in the day, if you listen to a Beatle record, it's either mostly a Hofner and, or a Rickenbacker, and then there's talk about, you know, towards the end, they were supplied with the Fender, Fender basses, you know. And, but then if you listen to most, most of the, what's on, what was on the radio back then, 50, uh, 60s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was either a Fender Jazz or a Precision, uh, rarely a Gibson and rarely a Wrecking Backer. Yeah, that was mostly it. Look at somebody like Carol Kay, the Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're, they're responsible for like 80% of the songs for most of the bands you heard in the 60s. And yeah. um, her bass sound, especially with the Beach Boys stuff, is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. She, oh, yeah. I think she was using the jazz maybe a p bass i don't know i think she used it i mean you know they use multiple bases and and did this so many projects recordings a lot of the times that electric bass was doubled by another bass let's say dan electro which has a very high pitch yep but it's very fragile. I've read interviews where John N. Whistle talked about buying a whole bunch of those bases because he would just break them 
and instead of like changing the strings, they would actually buy a new bass. Because <laughs> oh, sure, sure. they would be recording with them, you know, to get that trebly tone. And oh yeah, so they, uh, a lot of those recordings have actually multiple bass players. Like I mentioned, let's say Carol playing, let's say a precision, and they'll have another bass player playing the then electro with a higher pitch, and then you would have a, uh, a stand-up bass playing along with it. I mean, I'm not saying all the sessions were there, yeah. but there were some like that too. Yeah. Now you said you started on the guitar. Why did the switch over to the bass? Yeah, well, it wasn't really that I started on the guitar. I did start on the guitar because my parents bought a guitar for my brother and me to share back in 1963. But when I moved back to Miami, because we were relocated in 63, when we came back to Miami in 66, I went to the local garage band on my block. Each block had a garage band, and you could not go across the street to join another band. You know, there was that, <laughs> that, yeah. that yeah. Yeah, you know, that unspoken, you know, thought of like, okay, we're, this is my block, this is my people, this is my social network, I'm playing with these guys. So I walk in with, with that guitar, the acoustic guitar. Everybody was playing acoustic. It wasn't, you know, nobody had money to go electric yet. Mm. And as a matter of fact, the drummer had a, a phone book as his drum kit. That was it, you sure. know. Just he he did have drumsticks, but he beat up he beat on a on a on a uh, phone book. Sure. So I walk in. I say, "Hey, my name is Rudy. I just moved in, and I want to join your band." And they look at the guitar and they go, "Well, we got too many guitar players. Uh, if you want to join the band, you got to play bass." And I said, "What is that?" <laughs> and they say, "Yeah, it's like playing a, a guitar solo through the whole song." And I said, that's me. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Sign me up. So by so necessity, that, yes. there it is. Yeah, necessity of, uh, of joining a band. Yeah. Before we get into the specifics of your amazing uh, music career, I want to talk a little bit about your broadcasting chops. Now, I know you, you majored in mass communications in college. Correct? Yeah, that was that, yeah that, that was my major, mass communication. Uh, back in the day, the program was radio, television, and motion picture producing and directing. Uh, before I actually graduated, I, I got a road gig, so I did not uh, finish with the motion picture producing and directing, uh, which was my, my last uh, semester. But I went through it, all the other uh, education, the whole program, up until that. And in 2020, last year, I was inducted into the School Hall of Fame. Oh, that's awesome. I want to ask you specifically about your old podcast, The Dash. You know, I heard mm. you talk about why you call it that, and I was intrigued by that. Yeah. I, uh, you know, uh, as we are getting older, we're losing some of our bandmates, colleagues, you know, people who we tour with and you know, people who are part of our life. And uh, I would go to, to memorials such as, let's say, Lemmy or Ronnie James Dio and yeah. and sit there and all these um, friends and colleagues will come up and say all these wonderful words about them. And I thought, well, it would be great to actually document this. So this is not only heard by everybody, but everybody gets to express how they feel about themselves, their careers, their life, and everybody else connected that has actually contributed to their success, you know. And uh, so I started the Dash, and what happened was, within a couple of months of me doing it on my own, I got a call from the CEO of Monsters of Rock Radio and invited me to actually uh, move my my show. Because, you know, when you do a podcast, it's like we're having a conversation like this, and it's linear. Right. So we go on in any direction. Now what I do is it's a radio show, which is segmented. I have to come up with two segments per hour, and they're about 
Yeah. 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the flow of the conversation. Mm. And it's a four-hour show, so I get to do eight segments in the show. And it's it's more question-based, specifically. We go from theme to theme to theme, rather than you and I. I'm, I'm pretty sure you have certain questions, but, yeah. but our conversation can, can go in, in any direction right, at any right, moment, you right. know, without any interruption. Because I, there, it ha- there has to be an in and an out. And then we bring music. So the com- let's say the conversation is... Um, Let's say it's 25 minutes in one hour, and we split that in half, and then the rest is music related to our conversation. You know, bands that we talk about, and so on. Which do you like better? I mean, do you like the open-endedness and the off-the-cuff thing, or do you like more segmented? Well, you know, I balance it. So let's say I do your show, which is one continuous conversation, and then I do my show, which is segmented. I enjoy them both, yeah. Talk to me about coming to L.A., you don't do something like that lightly. Like, did you have something here ready to go, or were you just walking into the abyss? Um, yeah, pretty much. You know, just like anything else, you just you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. But what was guaranteed, guaranteed, back in the seventies, that Los Angeles, due to the fact that the record companies were based out of here, and it was sunny, versus New York City, where record companies were also based out of, but not as sunny all year round as LA is, was the ideal place to go. And see, both of them share the same consciousness as far as the gathering of musicians who want to take it to the next level, who want to become recording artists, a touring band, and so on. Whereas uh, it seemed like the rest of uh, the of America, since the record companies were not based out of there, maybe with with small exceptions like Chicago, uh, as far as rock and roll goes, and of course Detroit with R and B, you know, Motown and so right. on. But most of the major labels were headquarters at Los Angeles and New York. So, of course, you had uh, two two kinds of musicians. You had the ones who were born and raised in L.A., such as the members of Quiet Riot, uh, Kevin DeBrow and Randy Rhodes and Drew Forsythe, who I played with beginning in 1978. They were born and raised in Los Angeles. And, you know, there's a certain consciousness to that, which was a little bit different than if you were born and raised in, let's say, uh, Chicago. Right. Different, different, you know. It's uh, it's like, for example, the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys, you know, that that sunny disposition <laughs> right. about the music? Yeah, yeah. It could only be created in Los Angeles. Now, when there is one extreme, one side, they're always going to be the opposite side because right. life, life mirrors itself. Yep. So then you got the doors. The doors brought us the darker side of Los Angeles, which is basically the Sunset Strip. You know, we're also the sunny bands got to play <laughs> on the Sunset Strip because that's where the gigs were. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and still are, you know. So, uh, so that's what drew me to LA. The collective consciousness of people that really want to go beyond being in a top 40 band, which is what I was experiencing when I was living in Florida. How did you come to meet Quiet Riot? Uh, that's a really good question. It's, uh, for example, meeting Frankie Benali, who actually later on became a member of Quiet Riot, the mental health version of the band. Sure. I met him next year. It's going to be 50 years ago on my birthday. Oh, wow. And it's, it's usually by what I call divine intervention. It happened. 
is, 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 you know, it's one of those things that, for example, with Frankie, I had watched his band perform at a place called Pirate's World, which was a venue in Dania, Florida, near Fort Lauderdale, and opening up for David Bowie. This is 1972, November 17th. And one of the very few shows that the Spiders from Mars band did. Now, Frankie's band, Ginger, was a last-minute replacement for a lo another local band that couldn't make it. So they played. I had no idea who these guys were, but I was really blown away by Frankie's playing. Mm. I didn't know who the guy is. I just, I didn't even know who they were. I just, they're an opening band. I'm there to see Bowie and these guys come on. I go, wow, this is amazing. This guy is phenomenal, right? So the next day, it's my birthday and I'm hanging out at the local headquarters, which play headquarters, I mean, you know, it's kind of like social, the social networking in the old days was not Facebook or Instagram. It was actually, you had to go to a club where all the musicians hang out and there you meet people. That's how we did it a long time ago. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, so I, here I am talking to, you know, to some friends and they, one of them goes, hey, that's one of the guys from the band that opened up for, uh, for Bowie last night. And I just dash over to say hello to this guy. Sure. I introduce myself and I tell him how great their drummer was. And he, he smiles, sticks out his hand to shake my hand and he goes, hi, I'm Frankie. I'm the drummer. Wow. So right there, you know, without really even thinking about I'm going to play with this guy or anything, we just began a friendship that lasted until he passed away last year, right. August 20th, 2020. So, you know, him being more advanced than I was, because, you know, here I am in Miami. Now, Miami was worlds apart from Fort Lauderdale, which is where Frankie was from. It was only about an hour away or even less in 70s terms of traffic. Yeah. But Frankie... You know, he wanted the same thing I wanted. He wanted to get out of the area and go and make it as a recording artist. You know, that's consciousness right there, which was completely different from the, the guys that I was playing with in Miami. They were happy playing, you know, Big Daddy's Lounge, which was a big circuit yeah. and making enough money to, so they could have their apartment and get a car, do the drugs, hang out with the chicks and say, no, this is not what I want to do. This, this, this is crap. You know, yeah. I want to play all the people's music. I want to play my music, uh, my band's music. Sure. I want to be in a band with, you know, original music and recording artists and right, so on. Right. So Frankie and I, we, he mentored me how to do it, how to become part of a rhythm section and it was all about the music. So we left, we went on the road, not initially together, but somehow we wound up playing together in the Chicago area in the mid seventies. And then we came to LA together and we lived together. And then things happened and, you know, we could not make it as well the band that we were in. So we, I went back to playing with my brother in a uh, lounge band in the seventies. We moved, I, I went over and moved with him and his wife. They had a band and got some money together so I could return to LA in 1978. Now, prior to that, I was, of course, I, like I mentioned, I was in Los Angeles trying to make it. One night I go to this club called the Starwood. This is 1977, I believe. Yeah. And I walk in and I watch this band perform and I go, wow, these guys, they're on the right track. They're basically doing an arena style production and show performance in a club, the Starwood. And I go, huh, this, this is really cool. So I spot the singer as he was walking around after the show in the club. And I, and I go introduce myself and say, hey, man, you know, my name is Rudy. And hey, listen, I think you guys are on the right track. 
keep doing what you're doing and you I, I believe you guys are going to get signed you got you guys are going to be huge and he shakes my hand says hi i'm kevin and thank you so much for that advice and that was my prior to joining choir riot that was my conversation with one of the members of the band so the following year 1978 i'm actually getting ready i got my ticket to return to la and unbeknownst to me choir riot is looking for a bass player and they needed they wanted they wanted they say okay we, we want to get a bass player and they use a reference the reference was john deacon meaning that he played with his fingers he had a certain more of an r&b style because by then Choir Rye uh, was be really being influenced not only by Humble Pie, which was also Greg Ridley play with his fingers, yeah. more of that uh, R&B rock feel, you know, and sure. John Deacon, Greg Ridley, all those guys had that. They didn't want a guy that played with a pick. Or they, they tried just so many bass players and they just didn't have that feel. And everybody that knew me, that knew them, and said, hey man, you, you should get a hold of Rudy. You should have, because Rudy is the guy, of course. I was the guy because I had spent years playing disco <laughs> in Florida in the clubs. So yeah, and prior to that, Motown, when I was in the high school band. So that was like, basically, that's how I played. And to be honest with you, I really did not play in a rock, rock band. I mean, truly a rock band until I joined Choir Ryan in 78. Because every other band that I played in, we were kind of like a hybrid of different styles you know since we were top 40 we would play everything and choir riot was carving their sound their style that was it they were not a top 40 band they were an original band that once in a while they would do a cover but they would do it their way right you know so as i'm you know like i'm days from leaving jersey to come back to la I get a phone call from Kevin and say, hey, man, is this Rudy? And says, yeah, uh, hey, man, you know, we met and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, we're looking for a bass player. And everybody says that you're the guy. And I said, wow, that's great because I'm going to be there next week. So let me call you. When I get in, I'll come down and audition for you guys. So they sent me a tape and I learned a couple of songs. And I went in, I auditioned and got the gig. And that's how I started playing with Quiet Riot. Isn't the Randy Rose version of the band. Yeah. Isn't that something? So Kevin first, then you met Randy through joining the band. Yeah, I mean, you know, meeting, meeting was basically, hey, hi, right, you guys are right. great, nice to meet you, and then I just moved on without any preconceived notion that I was ever going to play with them, yeah. Now, they had had an album out, and I guess they were on CBS. Was it just Japan or? Yeah, actually, it wasn't even CBS, it was Sony Japan, and what happened was Sony, thanks to the Walkman, <laughs> oh, yeah. They got big enough that they could actually buy CBS. <laughs> gotcha. so, right. so when we signed for the Metal Health record, uh, we signed to two record deals. Actually, one production deal that became the record deal because uh, our Pasha records was a production deal. and They had a label, but it was actually a Columbia deal because I, that's what my recording contract is that I signed in 1982. Okay. The record was released in 83, but we signed the deal in 82. So, yeah, that, that's what happened. It, well, Quiet Riot, Sony Japan only release was the one that they did prior to me recording in well, the, the band. Well, it was Quiet uh, Riot 1 and 2, right? And yes. I know 2 has an early version of Slick Black Cadillac on it. Yes, and yes. It says you're, this happened to you a couple of times in your career. You're, mm -hmm. you're credited yeah. on the album, but yeah. you're not on the album playing. I'm not on the album. 
I'm not on the album playing. Yes, this one happened. And this is documented in the bass player that played on the record, Kelly Garney, who played on the uh, record one and two, and I replaced in 78. Something happened that I'm not even going to mention, but it was big enough for him to be like, uh, uh, yeah, that big enough for him to be like really cast out of the whole complete Quiet Riot family. Oh, come on, tell me. No, I can't. Well, it's, it's just me. You know you. what? Yeah, I know. It's it's in his book, and I think it's his story, and he should. I got that, you. I got you. Yeah. You know, that's his. It's his tale to tell. It, exactly. Okay. Thank you. That's beautifully said. His tale to tell. But it was heavy enough that it was like persona non grata. Mm -hmm. They didn't want him anywhere. So when it came time to do the photo session, I was the bass player. But yeah, no, no, he's the uh, he's the bass player on that record, uh, one and two, and something similar happened with Ozzy Osbourne yeah, on that Diary that. of a Madman record. Yeah, 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 something similar happened. That uh, see the photo session for the Choir Riot two record, we knew, I knew that that was for that record. The photo that came out for the album sleeve of Diary of a Madman because it's not on the covers on the sleeve. Uh, that was from a photo session from Ross Halfin. Now, Ross Halfin would travel with us all the time. So I thought, well, this photo session is going to be for the next tour book. Because my original tour book was were photos that were taken from like, one of them is a Choir Riot era photo with Randy Rhodes. Mm -hmm. You know, because there was no time. I joined right. the band and they got this tour book and we're, we're like 10 days away from you know, from going on the road and they had to put out a tour book to sell us merchandise. And Sharon asked, does anybody have a, uh, she asked me, does, does any, does any, do you have any photos? And I said, yeah, contact this guy, Ron yeah. Sobel, yes. which was a friend of the band. He did the lights and also he took a lot of photos for, for Choir Riot, especially during, during the, the Randy Rhodes era. And then later on for the mental health because he was our lighting director on tour. So he's the guy who has his photo from a session that I did with uh, with Choir Riot. Well, I want to ask you about that. Just backing up a little bit. Randy got the call first to go with Ozzy. And you had to be happy for him. But was there any... Of course. I don't want to say animosity, but was there any kind of pang in the band that said, geez, you know, what are we going to do now? Or was it... All no, cool? no, no. We, we, we understood. We understood that uh, we, we had hit a wall. Yeah, and the wall was uh, the record companies were not not only not interested in Quiet Riot, they were not interested in any rock band that was coming out of L.A. Uh, it was on New Van Wave Halen, back then. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Van Halen was 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 the last one yeah. to uh, to get signed and uh, and to go out there and do it. No, I mean there were versions of like Rat called Mickey Rat. There were versions of Doc and version of Motley Crue called London. Mm -hmm. Greg White was called something else. I mean, they were more, you know, a lot of the bands that made it in the 80s were around in the 70s oh, trying sure. to make it just, just like Quiet Riot was. Yeah. So Randy joins Ozzy and he goes out there and, you know, I continue uh, trying to do certain things that I thought, well, maybe if I cut my hair a bit, I can actually fit into this new wave world because, you know, I... <laughs> You know, I must adapt. I learned to adapt at a very early age. But then again, I, I, you have to adapt within reasonable being yourself. You know, even if I cut my hair, I was still a, a rock musician. I was not a new wave or a punk musician. You know, that it, it, it just did not suit me. That's, that wasn't that, that wasn't in my heart. 
So, uh, you know, we put band together and it was usually, let's say one of them was with Frankie Benelli. It was called Private Army. We put this band, we had a, we made some great demos with like Roy Thomas Baker's engineers and so on mm. at Cherokee Studios and so on. But it sounded like rock musicians trying to be new wave. <laughs> it didn't have that, that honesty the, of a new wave band, you know. And so that failed, and I kept doing other things. I joined a band called Angel. I joined, I moved in with Kevin. I started playing in his band called Dubrow, which is the missing link between Quiet Riot with Randy and the Metal Health version of Quiet Riot. So, you know, I started playing with him. He's working on new material and playing bass on those songs. I'm writing bass lines for that. And unbeknownst to me, a lot of them, the bulk of that material on Metal Health was from the Dubro era, with a few exceptions. Common Field of Noise, that's a Slate song. Yeah. And then you have two songs that Carlos Calvazo brought into the Metal Health record from his band called Snow, uh, a song uh, that originally was titled No More Booze. And was rewritten lyrically as Metal Health. And then you have The One I Let You Go. And those two songs, Chuck Wright plays on the record. And he's credited on the back of the record. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is just flip it over and read credits. Oh, this guy played, yeah. Chuck Wright played on these two songs. Simple, you know. <laughs> That's the way it was always done back in the day. You give credit to the people that played on the record on the back of the record, sure. you know. And uh, that leads me up to actually being on, uh, sleeping on Kevin Dubrow's floor and playing in two bands, Angel and Dubrow, and getting the call to audition for Ozzy. You know, they needed, if they, were, if they would have been looking for a bass player in New York or a bass player in Chicago or any other city, London, they would have called somebody else for the audition. As a matter of fact, a lot of people auditioned for it. See, there were some qualifications that you had to have to join Ozzy. One of them was the trust factor. People had to know each other. Right. So Randy vouched for me. They were looking for a bass player that was not going to be a bad influence on Ozzy. You know, uh, somebody that did as much drugs or drank as much as he did. You know, okay. So Randy knows me. I play with him in Quiet Ryan. Not only that, but I also taught with him at his mom's school, Musonia. Yeah. And that's where we really got to spend a lot of time together. You know, so Randy kept telling Ozzy and Sharon, Rudy's the guy. And, you know, they were about to go on the road within 10 days from the time that I got the calls. It was like, they were running out of time. It was sure. like, okay, yeah. let's get this guy, you know. And so that's why, you know, that, that's how I, I became a member of the band. Now, you mentioned that there were other people that had auditioned as well. Anybody we would yeah. know? No, I, you know, if there were anybody that you would know, I don't know who, who they were. I did not ask, hey, who else auditioned? Yeah, right. No, I was, I got the gig. That's all I needed to know. I was looking through your book and I know there's an interesting first experience at Sharon's father, Don Arden's house. Well, I was staying at his house, so it, it was inevitable I was going to run into him, especially at breakfast. Right, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was really amazing. I mean, they, they just took me in a complete stranger and they just treated me like one of the family. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, wow, this is amazing. These people are so kind. You know, they say, okay, okay, you see all those cars right there in the, you know, in the parking structure? Because, you know, they live in like in a compound up in the hills. And uh, the record company, Jet Records, was in, in the compound also. And then they had like these bungalows surrounding the house. It was, it was, it was an amazing, amazing yeah. place. Yeah. I went from sleeping on the floor in Kevin's apartment 
to actually living with them in one of the bungalows. And Sharon says, yeah, just uh, grab any of those cars except the Rolls. That's, that's dad's. <laughs> so I say, okay, wow. but the rest of the cars were just like brand new Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like I was going to grab one and start driving around town because no, no, I wasn't. But it was that kind of kindness, you know. The night of the day that, that I got, that I passed the audition and became a member of Ozzy's band. So Randy goes home and Tommy Eldridge, who was also staying there, he goes to his room to go to sleep and Sharon just leaves Ozzy and me uh, playing, playing pool in the pool room. So we're talking and he's telling me about, you know, Randy, how much he really appreciates him and all this stuff, you know, just getting to know each other a little bit. Yeah. And, and Ozzy had been drinking a lot and he decides to take a leak. Uh, there was a bar in the pool room and he goes in and pees in the sink and, and he, and he gets caught by, by Don as he's walking by and yells at him and, and we run out of the house. I mean, I had nothing to do with it, but I see Ozzy running. I, I, I run because it's like, who's this guy? I haven't met, I haven't met Don yet. You know, what are you doing here? Was it, you know, I, I, I wanted to avoid that you know, completely. So I run out of the house with, with Ozzy and I say, uh, listen, can you take me back home? You know, home to me was the floor sleeping in Kevin's apartment. And he said, oh man, I can't drive. You know, Ozzy did not get his uh, U.S. license, uh, driver's license until like recently, maybe uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago. Really? So, wow. so, 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 yeah, so, so, which was a good thing because he was not in no shape to drive, no, you know. No, no. And he just, he just pointed out one of the bungalows and he says, yeah, you just go ahead and sleep there. So I walk in the bungalow and I'm like, wow, what about if they find me in here? What, what do I say? <laughs> you know, like, so eventually I went to sleep. I just, I just passed out. Yeah. Then in the morning I, I hear a knock on the bungalow door and Sharon saying, Rudy, we're having breakfast. Come on down. And that's when officially I met uh, everybody, you know, everybody meaning Don and Rachel yeah. and, and uh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And, and it was no, Dirty looks, no questioning. Who is this guy? What are you doing here? It was just, who are you? No, nothing. It was just like, here, have some breakfast, have some food. And yeah, and yeah. It was, it was. That's the way it should be. But rarely it is. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, you know, and again, for all the mythology behind Ozzy and the craziness and all that, he strikes me as somebody that when the job has to get done, he pretty much does it. I know he was had some problems with Black Sabbath toward the end there, but am I, am I wrong? I mean, oh, well, I'm completely right. Yeah. On stage, what was like the wildest anecdote that you can think of oh, with Ozzy? There are so many, but the one that it, the most infamous one is the uh, the throwing the bat on stage, Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually the bat landed in front of me when we were playing, and, and I, you know, was what I was head banging, and I looked down and I see this crumpled up thing. I couldn't even tell what it was. It was just this crumple up thing. Yeah. I thought it was a rubber, like a toy that somebody threw on stage, you know. And I looked at it and I got Ozzy's attention, which was very rare because Ozzy's is kind of like out there going insane. So I got his attention and I moved away from it and he came over and I, I see him picking it up and I just kept head banging, you know. So... Obviously, I did not see it happen because I was paying attention to what I'm to what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Right. Because because unbeknownst to me, he is putting it in his mouth. <laughs> he thinks it's a toy, a toy bath. Right. 
Then he bites into it and, and realizes it's a real thing, real bad. Spits it out, goes into the, the pit. The pit is that divide between the audience and the stage. Mm. A pit to keep the people from pushing and, you know, reaching the stage. Usually what the photographers are sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the pit. Yeah, we just call it the pit. Yeah. And, and it disappears. Nobody knows whatever happened to that bat. Somebody grabbed it and ran, ran with it or, or ate it or something. So the reason why I keep saying they, it disappears, they could not test the bat to see if it had rabies. Right. So as a precaution, they right immediately, after, when we finished the last song, I see all this commotion going on, and I go, what's going on? And then, you know, Randy explains to me uh, well, that they were taking him to the hospital because, of, you know, of, of this, this thing that happened on stage. And then all the information, little by little, becomes clear. Oh, this is what's going on. Because it's, it's just crazy. Because you don't know what the hell is happening. You know, they tell you something and I'm going, no, it can't be. You're, I can't wrap my head around this. So it takes a few people to tell me exactly the same thing to say, okay, well, it must be true because <laughs> they're saying it and they're not contradicting each other. So before I know it, the bus is parked outside the emergency, uh, the emergency room of the local hospital in Des Moines. And we're waiting for Ozzy to come out so we can go on to the next city. And uh, the tour manager asked me for my camera, and he takes the camera, goes inside, and takes some photos. And once he's done with the photos, uh, Sharon takes the role and gets it developed. And <laughs> they use that as, as the publicity pictures because Sharon's, you know, I mean, she learned a lot from her dad, and then she took it to the next level, you know, because, you know, her dad was more 60s and 70s mm. management style. She went into the 80s. She went into the MTV generation. Right where you, you could I really use the media sure. as a tool to promote the artist. The artist who became her husband <laughs> at some point, you know, so it's like the next level. So she was on that, on that trail. She was younger. Of course, you know, when I see younger, younger than her dad. And so that it's generational thing. You know, you do th things a certain way in the 60s and 70s or the 50s, which is where her dad started as uh, being a manager in the music industry. And also, not only a manager, but a, a record uh, label executive. Well, you know, he had his own label, Jet sure. Records, right. which had Air Supply and... ELO, right? ELO, yeah. And uh, Widowmaker, you know, all these bands. And as a matter of fact, I got to hang out with the guys from uh, Air Supply. And <laughs> so when we get together and we take pictures, says, how do you guys know each other? It's because we've known each other since the Aussie days. Sure. sure. <laughs> and, you know, Sharon is very media savvy, like you said, and knew what she was doing in terms of an image. But I always felt bad because he gets attributed with, like, he's the devil who bites the heads off bat. He always was honest and said, hey, I got rabies shots in the stomach and it's no fun, kids. You know, I always felt like he got a bum rap by the establishment, quote unquote, for things that just kind of happened to him because of who he was and how Sharon publicized it. Yeah, you know, I've come to learn that, you know, there's so much perception involved with each, each individual. I mean, you know, for example, I can tell you the story, that particular story. And five other people that were there, they'll give you their own version of the story. Correct. So it comes down to, to perception. And Ozzy is one of those, he's like an open canvas that Ozzy could be anything to you, to your perception of what you want him to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of myths becoming facts, 
a lot of people become mythologized in death. I think Randy Rhodes can be put in that category. And uh, some things are written that aren't true. But you being one of his best mates, you know, long before the world knew him, can you set the record straight definitively of what happened on March 19, 1982? You mean set the record straight all over again? <laughs> well, I know. I know. You're right. Recently, I saw some BS documentary where they were trying to say that it was planned and, you know... Again, you know, again, perception. I mean, I can only give you the perception for my end for being there. Uh, people that were not there to witness things, they have not the right, but the freedom to create anything in their mind that they want to, to suit their needs. So if somebody needs to do that, let's say you're a documentarian, you're making a documentary and you need content. You need people to, to create controversy. Because nowadays it's pretty much controversy. It's what's going to put eyeballs on the screen, whether it's a, an iPhone to watch something on YouTube or, or television set at, at home. And, you know, they have the freedom, not the right, but the freedom to rewrite history according to their own perception. Legally, there's certain things that you can do, but in, in the big picture, you're really going to be putting out a fire for the rest of your life. You know, like, let's say when people ask me about Diary of a Madman or, or, or Blizzard of Oz, you know, is the, for the rest of my life, I'll be correcting them and saying, no, Tommy Aldridge and I joined Ozzy after those records were recorded. We are not playing on those records. And I understand that. You know what I mean? So whenever I have the opportunity to clarify certain things, I, I even wrote about it in my book, Off the Rails. So it's, it, but then it's not enough because people are free to have their own perception of things. I'm not saying that they are correct, that that freedom is correct if, if, the, if it's misinformed, but they have their freedom. They have, I'll put it this way, they have that right. Yeah. It's a, it's a free will. God gives you free will to do certain things. Sure. And it's your decision. And this is something that, uh, that, that is, is, is become part of my consciousness. Actually, my perception of what free will is. And again, this is my perception. Okay. Free will is you have two choices. You have the choice of doing the laws of nature. By say doing is following the laws of nature. You know, if you look at the universe, it's very well laid out. You know, planets. I mean, of course, we have black holes and things like that. Okay, yeah. that's that's basically a, a a a star, which is a sun, a solar system collapsing. You know, but you know it, what what laws of nature that keeps the moon from colliding with Earth, which is gravity. All these things. They're part of God's laws of nature, right? That's God's will. You know, we're really the only creatures on this planet that can make certain decisions. You know, like a tree cannot uproot itself and say, I'm going to go across the street. I don't like it here. It's sunnier across right. the street. Right. And uproot themselves. No, we can. So we have that. We've been given that. So people have that free will. You can either follow the laws of nature, do the right thing, or create chaos. Okay, when you get on the freeway, you're trusting drivers in the other cars that they're going to do the right thing by staying within those little white lines that are painted on the asphalt of the freeway. 
Little white lines, they're basically nothing. Those little white lines are not keeping you in the lane. It's your consciousness that's saying, okay, I am not going to crash against the other individuals. Right. Now, meanwhile, once in a while, you get somebody on the other side of the lane going in the opposite direction, creating chaos. They have decided to do that. That's their decision. They had the free will to go and mangle people, kill themselves in, in car crashes. People who are drunk drivers, you know, yes, they're under the influence of alcohol, but they have made that decision. They have the free will to do that, you know. So it's, it's a gift, but if you abuse it, if you abuse free will, then it becomes something that is harmful to you and the universe. So that's how you make sense of the nonsense that some people want to put out. They choose to make chaos. Yeah, it's their choice. Nothing you can do about it. Well, you can defend yourself against it. You have to. You, know, you can become aware of it. Right. Don't be asleep. <laughs> you know, be very aware of it. Made certain decisions, uh, but if you all of a sudden lobotomize everybody and keep an okay, everybody's going to do the same thing. Which, which is what certain societies or extreme societies will do. They turn you into a robot. Usually, the first generation that accepts it. And says, you know what? Being a robot is really a good idea. Mm. Then before you know it, the two or three generations after that, 60 years later, the new generation wakes up and says, wait a minute. I'm not a robot. Right. I'm a human being. And right. they rebel against that. Right. Very true. And also very current. Because <laughs> I feel we're all getting a little lobotomized recently. Well, you know, it's, it's not the first time or the last time. No, everything is cyclical. Yeah. It's all cyclical. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. cyclical. Yeah. Well, getting off the heavy stuff for a moment and onto the heavy metal a little bit. Right. Quiet Riot. In 1983, you guys were everywhere. Huge. I was surprised to hear that you guys were not thrilled with doing Come On, Feel the Noise, doing the cover. I didn't know about Slade when I was 12 years old, but hearing you guys do it made me want to go out and research the band. And I love that about rock and roll. You can always find something new if you look hot enough. Uh, okay, this is what happened. Um, Spencer Proffer, the producer who also owned Pasha Records, he was looking for a voice, a singer that could sing Come and Feel the Noise in Los Angeles. So he found Kevin. At the time, the band was not even named Choir Riot. It was named Dubrow. It was not renamed Choir Riot until Frankie, Kevin, Carlos, and myself, we signed the Columbia Records record deal. That's when the band became Choir Riot again. Okay. And the last Choir Riot show that we did was with Randy Rhodes prior to that. Then Dubrow happened, the missing link between both Choir Riots. And then it became Choir Riot again when we signed the record deal. And, and we did our first performance as Choir Riot the weekend when the record was released on in March, March of 1983. I believe March 16 or something like that, whatever the Tuesday is. I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, we did two nights at the Roxy, sold out two shows each night. And it, it was an amazing, amazing um, evening. What was the original question? Because, you know, I, I just went to the Roxy right there when, when I was talking about it. And I just well, lost well, track. Well, was, no, no, but come on, feel the noise. You said they were. Oh, yeah, come on, feel the noise. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I get a call from Kevin. To, uh, well, I was on a break from, from playing with Ozzy. I'm still in Ozzy's band. I'm, we're getting ready to go to New York to do pre-production for Speak of the Devil record, which is the Black Sabbath re-recordings at the Ritz. Yep. Kevin calls me up and says, hey, listen, I'm in the studio. We're going to record Thunderbird and 
this is for a possible future record. Now, Kevin had asked Randy and me to get our, our blessings for him to rename the band that he's doing, Dubro, at some point, Quiet Riot. Hmm. And we say, yeah, of course, you know. So we knew that at some point that band was going to be named Quiet Riot. Again, yeah. if there was ever a record deal, right. <laughs> you know, because he was waiting for that. You sure. Know? So I go in the studio just to record one song, Thunderbird, and I bring my practice bass because all my gear was on the road with Ozzy. So I have my practice bass with me. And uh, we record Thunderbird, which I had already played that with Kevin when I was a member of Dubrow, living with him. And, you know, that's my bass line that I, that I used to play with him in Dubrow. So I record the song. And, of course, it went by really fast because I already knew the song. I had been playing with him. So they go, well, we got about three hours left in the session. Do you remember Slick Black Cadillac? Now, Slick Black Cadillac is the only song from the Randy Rhodes era that made it to the Metal Health record. Yep. And it was written by, by Kevin as a dare from Randy for Kevin to write a great song. <laughs> he came up with that. Okay. And I think he did. He yeah. hit it out, out of the park. With sure. That. Okay. So we do that one. And then we do a couple more. And then that's my session. So I recorded four songs by the time I left that session that went up on Metal Health. And as I'm packing up, I hear Kevin and Frankie talking about sabotaging uh, Come On, Feel The Noise because they didn't want it to wind up on the record, even though that was the only reason why they were there <laughs> to record the other songs. Yeah. You know, because solely all that Spencer cared about was like, okay, we're going to do this song, Come On, Feel The Noise, because it's a hit and Kevin can sing it, you know. So Frankie agrees with Kevin that he was going to play as bad as he could. So Spencer would give up on the idea. And me, you know, knowing Frankie, I mean, you know, by the time that we did that session that I'm talking about, it was almost 10 years to the day that I had met him and started playing with him. Mm. 10 year cycle. Yep. You know, I met him in 72. This is 1982. Okay. And I played with him so many, you know, for on and off for those 10 years and I knew that under no circumstance could Frankie play bad. He couldn't. Some people just put a gun to the head and, and say, do something. Well, for Frankie to be under, under that pressure to play bad, he couldn't play bad. He yeah. couldn't. Even if he tried, he couldn't play bad. So Frankie's version of playing bad is what you hear on Come On, Feel The Noise. One take. <laughs> and at the, at the end of the take, I'm there watching this whole thing. So I'm saying, I, you know, I wasn't going to miss out on Frankie playing bad because I've never heard him play bad. So I watch this and I go, okay, this is going pretty well. And, and then <laughs> the producer says, okay, we got it. And Kevin is fuming because now he's got to sing the song, you yeah. know. And yeah. at that, at that session, I, I did not play Come and Feel the Noise. I'd never, you know, I actually had never heard of the song before. Mm -hmm. And because the more the more popular Slade songs were, you know, Goodbye to Jane and things like that. Yeah. Come on, Feel the Noise was not a popular in the United States not in here, the 70s. Yeah, exactly, right. Come on, Feel the Noise. Okay. I was aware of Slade. I had seen him a bunch of times on uh, those uh, Don Kirshner in concert, you know, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Never, never seen him live or anything like that. Okay. So, you know, then I leave to do the pre-production with Ozzy. And, and one thing that lingered with me was the feeling of family once again. You know, after, after Randy passed away, I lost something that I could not pinpoint. 
I knew that I lost Randy and I knew that I lost my family connection to the choir riot consciousness mm -hmm. that I already experienced in the 70s with him, right? Again, you know, going back to what, what was Quiet Riot, what Quiet Riot was a reflection to me of, of Los Angeles, that Sunny, they were like the, the rock version or metal version of the Beach Boys. They yeah. really represented LA at that time. Yeah. You know, the consciousness. We were all in sync. That's all we did. We talked about music. Did we ne I, I, I had no idea. I really didn't care about their political views or religious views or anything. All we talked about is how we're going to get a record deal and take this to the next level. Yeah. That was it. You know, so once Randy died, I lost that family, that familiarity of, 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 of Quiet Riot, and you know, completely. Because mm -hmm. Ozzy, he, he comes from a whole different place. You know, he comes from Birmingham, England. Right. You know, I remember Ozzy telling me about being a child playing in the rubble uh, of buildings that had been bombarded by, yeah. by the Nazis, you yeah. know, yeah. post-war, you know. He was born a few years after the war ended, and it took a long time for England to recover yep. from the war. So he felt that. And living in an industrial city like Birmingham, uh, you know, being raised there, that, that, was, that was pretty doom and gloom, you know. And, 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 uh, and Tommy, Tommy, you know, raised in the States, but, you know, more like in uh, Arkansas area, Texas and all mm -hmm. that. Not necessarily L.A., and then, you know, again, when I joined Quiet Riot, it was pretty much like Miami, you know, where I grew up in, was very sunny. I was born in the Caribbean, so going to LA, it suited me. It really yeah. did, you know. So I lost that. I lost that familiarity. And then once I'm in the room again with Kevin and Frankie, I got it back. I got it I'm like, oh, okay, family again. This, this is what it feels like to play with, you know, the people that we are on the same wavelength. I keep calling it consciousness, but it's, it's the same thing. We're in the same frequency, musically and lifestyle and everything. And so I decided to leave one of the biggest bands in the world, Ozzy, just to find the joy of music, playing, making music again with, uh, you know, with my family. It's like going back Kevin home. Kevin and Kevin and Frankie. Yeah, going back home. Yeah. It is. I, I can understand yeah. that. And I'm sure yeah. it wasn't a decision you made lightly. But I made it quickly. You did? Oh, yeah. I made it quickly because after Randy died, I, I, I lost it. I, I lost my joy of making music. I really did, and I had to move on. I knew I had to move on. I didn't know how or where I was going to go, but once I found it in that first session that we did for Metal Health Record, I, I knew this is, this is where I belonged. Sure. And I recently rewatched a clip of you guys at the US Festival in 1983. And you can just see some one of those old shit moments of well, what a gig, you know, what a what a reaction. The, the audience's energy kind of feeds back in a loop with you guys. Was that one of the highlights? Uh, perception again. My personal perception of the show was that my backline wasn't working. My amplifier did not work. Really? It was rental gear. We got added to the US Festival two days before the show because they moved Joe Walsh to the following day with Stevie Nicks mm -hmm. and David Bowie. So there was an opening and we had been touring with the Scorpions opening up for them for their warm-up dates leading up to the US Festival. And so on the last day of, of that little tour, mini tour, 
we were playing in Denver, which is where Barry Fay, the promoter for the US Vessel, was based out of. And he saw us perform. And right after the show, he came in, in the dressing room and told us, hey, would you guys like to be, uh, be added to the US Festival? I had no idea what, what, you know. And it was great because if you knew you were going to play the US Festival like two months before, you're like, your mind is building up to it and the tension and, right, the, right. and everything, right? But no, it was like we were thrown into it and it was like kind of like, oh, now we got to book a flight to go to LA, then do a gig and then fly back out the same day of the US Festival. We left like after we played, we, we grabbed towels, cleaned ourselves up and headed up back, back to the airport to make it to the next gig that was booked the following day. So, so it was, it was like kind of like survival mode. My, <laughs> my rig wasn't working. Uh, my, if you listen to, Come and feel the noise of mental health. My tuner got knocked out of calibration with Carlos's tuner. And so when I came back after his solo, my guitar was in tune to me, but not to Carlos. And all this stuff was going on. So it was basically not any different than any Choir Riot show as far as a performance. But we, I, I, we, we had challenges. We had really had some challenges to do. That had nothing to do with having 350,000 people in the audience. Yeah. No, that was it. I would have had the same challenge if I was playing in a club. <laughs> now I got to go back and rewatch it because <laughs> I was, yeah. just, you know, you're right. Perception. It's, uh, was yeah, it, perception. You know, yeah. Well, you sound, yeah. I mean, to me, you guys sounded great. Um, well, I mean, we were not any better that night than we were any other day. You know, we just went out there and we did what Choir Riot did. See, there's a lot us. of bands that run hot and cold. You guys didn't. No, we didn't. You just said, no, we didn't. That was your show. Oh, I, I, and it was something that it was basically carried on from the early Choir Riot with Randy Rose. If you put two photos together of Randy playing in Choir Riot and Randy playing in Ozzy, it's the same Randy. Yep. Of course, he's got more musical freedom with right. Ozzy, but as far as his passion and his performance, his fire, it's the same. Exactly the same. I know that you guys did a great record, I think you contributed with the guys from Dio with Jeff Tate singing. I've covered Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds oh, yeah. years ago. We're coming up on the 41st anniversary of uh, John Lennon's assassination. But I'm curious, do you remember where you were when you heard the news that John Lennon had been killed? Yeah, I was in Kevin's apartment. Uh, I was already living with him. And uh, yeah, it was like one of those unbelievable moments. And it's like, but then again, you know, we were, you know, it, 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 those were some tough times. I mean, to us, it was not just the death of, to us was the death of rock. Yeah. We were experiencing the death of rock as we knew it, even without Lennon getting shot. Because to us, you know, since the com record companies in 1980 had shut the doors to anything that we grew up with, that we created, Music that we created, that style of music that was part of us, us, you know, it was like, that's just another nail on the coffin. Sure. Not only are we being killed musically, creatively, but our heroes are being uh, wiped out. And ironically, though, a couple of years later, they couldn't sign heavy metal bands fast enough. And that stayed for a good decade almost until Nirvana and all that kind of killed it. You know, my perception from being there in the 50s, <laughs> True. you know... The 60s were not like the 50s. The 70s were not like the 60s. The 80s were not like the 70s. And if you follow the cycle, the 90s are not going to be like the 80s. Things change. Well, 
Things you evolve. go back to classical music, you know, you, uh, and, I, and I'm not going to put anything in chronological, but Mozart was not like Bach and neither was Chopin or Beethoven or Stravinsky. All composers built upon each other. Or if you look at jazz, artists who, to me, Miles Davis, he understood so much. Oh, my God. I mean, to me, he's the singularly the most important artist of my generation, of my lifetime. Yeah. Only because he understood cycles. He started out playing bebop. He left right. home to play, you know, with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. But he also understood that bebop hit a wall. And so he created cool, yep. which is the antithesis of bebop. And then he kept moving. You know, he knew that when popular music came in, he knew the importance of Jimi Hendrix. He knew the importance of the Beatles. He kept changing. He came shifting. He understood the cycles. So you can never really bog down somebody like Miles Davis. I mean, of course, he had his, his challenges because of drugs, right. you know. But once he cleaned up, he cleared his head, his musical vision. Oh, he, he was, he was he's, to me, the most important artist because he personalized somebody who really understood the cycles of music. He was doing electronic music towards the end. I mean, totally avant-garde like Scandinavian electronic music. He was doing rap towards yeah. the end, yeah. you know, and I hate to say towards the end because his music is endless, it's, it's, it's timeless. Sure. He will be influencing generations to come with his beautiful compositions, his morphing from one thing into the other, understanding the cycles and being in front of the cycles. He became the cycle. He was the cycle, you know, for a long, long time. And uh, I, I, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of jazz musicians that I that I admire and I listen to, but to me, Miles Davis really encapsulates the whole thing. Got to ask you about a couple of more up to date things. How did you transition from mostly playing heavy metal bass to recently working with the Guess Who? Two different approaches entirely. Mm -hmm. What did you mm -hmm. do to prepare? I prepared for it when I was in, in my high school band playing Guess Who music. <laughs> Grew up with that. What about equipment-wise? Did you have to change stuff around? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I decided to, well, you know, you just go back to the way it was back then. <laughs> you know? And, so, and since I, have, I was around then, I say, okay, well, you know, this music was recorded either with a precision or a jazz bass. Yep. So passive, passive. So I went with passive instruments. You know, the, the traditional backline that was the, I see, because I took over the original bass player. He had a, he had an SVT. I kept playing an SVT. And that's it. It, it was pretty easy because I was aware. It's only a matter of making the effort. Yep. You know, I, I didn't go out there and try to play with a heavily saturated active tone or anything like that because that's not what the guess who no is all about. No phases or flanges. I mean, if, if there's any, it would be in the front of the house. You know, you let the uh, yeah, yeah. the front of the house guy mix it like that. But uh, right, no, right. I just, I present a very honest 60s, 70s uh, style. And I grew up with that. So it's not like I'm trying to like figure it out. It's like, right, no, right. this is part of my trajectory. Been hearing everywhere that you're rejoining Quiet Riot. You must be psyched about that. Yes, I'm, I'm extremely psyched about it. First of all, I get to uh, honor Frankie's wish for me to uh, to return home and I get to come back home <laughs> you know so it's like it's uh, I am very very sad I, I'm very very blessed to be able to do this it's gonna be bittersweet of course yeah but what better way for me to celebrate the legacy of, of my bandmates my family and we're working on new music and uh, yeah touring and a lot of surprises
1984 album Condition Critical. That's Quiet Riot with Mama, We're All Crazy Now, featuring the great Rudy Sazo on bass. And I want to thank him for spending just a great deal of time with us today. And we'll be keeping our eyes open for the new Quiet Riot material. I'd say that should be out sometime next year. And remember to check us out at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com for past episodes, links to merchandise, and more. And we're going to leave you today with that Beatle cover we talked about with Rudy Sazo along with Jeff Tate and members of Dio. They all contributed to the heavy metal compilation Butchering the Beatles, a head-bashing tribute. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope eyes Something flowers from yellow and green Towering over your head Look for the girl with the sun in the Seen borders with looking.